Hello and welcome to Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the best-selling author of 11 novels. She's edited six anthologies and won awards for poetry, short stories and screenplays. She's held many fellowships and her creative writing teaching spans over 20 years. Her latest book is The Bewitching, which draws in the 16th century case of the Witches of Warboys. Jill Dawson, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you, Georgina. Very pleased to be here. Well, this is, in fact, the second time you've done the programme. And in the intervening couple of years, you've you've come out with another two books. Do you think that you're unusually prolific? <laughs> I do think I'm productive and focused. I Strangely, people might be surprised to hear this, I do have time off in between books also. So there's a sort of way in which when I'm writing, I'm incredibly focused. And when I'm not, I really do genuinely give myself the time off. And when you're writing, are you writing every single day? I'm writing more like four days a week. I run a creative writing program. I know you know this, Gold Dust Mentoring Program. And I tend to have my one-to-one mentoring days on a Tuesday. So that's when I work with new writers on their novels. And then the rest of the week, and not even the weekend, I don't tend to work at the weekend, the rest of the week I'm writing or reading, which are my sort of two main (laughs) activities, because, of course, the reading feeds the writing that you're doing. Mm. And in terms of the reading, I mean, most of your books appear to be based on a true story. And so is your reading all non-fiction? I do read a lot of nonfiction and I find it very inspiring. You can read things that seem not to be about your subject at all. I mean, I read books about, you know, neurology or different kind of aspects of sort of areas of life I know nothing about, let's say. And then that feeds into what I'm doing. So say for The Witches of War Boys, I read a fabulous contemporary book called Sleeping Beauties about modern day versions of a sort of hysterical sickness happening in Sweden in the 21st century. And that goes right to the heart of what I was writing about in The Bewitching. Mm. Let's talk about the first book that you've written since our last conversation, which was The Language of Birds. And that was all about the Lord Lucan case. Tell us a little bit more about it. Well, readers will probably, or listeners rather, will know the the Lucan case, 1974, a murder of a nanny in Lucan's household. And the idea was that Lucan himself had done the murder, but he'd immediately disappeared. It was thought that he'd murdered the nanny, mistaking her for his wife. And that was as much as people knew. And then the press, the media, in fact, everyone seemed to obsess over what happened to Luke and where did he go? Did he escape? Did he commit suicide? And there was very little attention paid to his victim, a young woman working in his household, a nanny called Sandra Rivet. And of course, my interest um, as you know, anyone who reads my work will know is often in the forgotten, the women, um, the poorer characters, just the ones that history writes out. And in this case, I thought it was really shocking and telling that this woman's life was not known. So I looked at what details were known of her. For example, she had some children of her own that she gave up for adoption to sons. And I found that particularly poignant when she was working, caring for the children of others. So I began investigating Sandra's life, but I will say that the language of birds took another direction. In the end, I didn't feel, unlike some of my novels, that I could 
tell her story because I realized these sons, for example, were very much alive and Sandra had living relatives. So I sort of moved away in the language of birds and it becomes a novel about Mandy and Rosemary, two nannies from the Fens who go down to London to work for an aristocratic family. Mm. Now, the Fens are really important to you. And here I I want to just sort of uh, go sideways a little bit to talk about your husband, because he's this incredible architect and he's, he's in fact made the house that you live and write in. Indeed. And, you know, neither of us, Meredith, my husband, nor me, knew the Fens 20 odd years ago when we moved here. We uh, we sort of drew a, you know, a circle around London and around where our families were living and saying, how far should we move? And this felt like the right distance. And we bought some land here and, and um, Meredith's very, very first building, our house was much <laughs> fated, as, as you know. But the Fens quickly became something that interests us both me in my writing and Meredith in his architecture because it's a peculiar landscape reclaimed from being underwater hundreds of years ago it's a I feel a little known aspect of you know various beautiful counties in England I've lived in Yorkshire Staffordshire Essex and it feels to me this part of Cambridgeshire obviously the Fens also goes into Norfolk and Lincolnshire but the where the where I write about is the Cambridgeshire Fens, that it isn't well known and it remains a little bit mysterious and hidden, which is of course perfect material for a novelist. Absolutely. And it's a wonderful eco house. It is, which right at this moment when everyone is stressing about uh, their electricity bills, I do feel rather you know reluctant to mention um how our house is very very well insulated that's the trick of it so it has passive solar which means that you know it's a house that's beautifully cool in the summer we don't need any air con we don't use fans not at all we just lower the blinds and in the winter it's also very toasty so that's kind of Meredith's gift I can't take any credit for it that's what he does and that's what he does with mole architects you know, in his other work too. He's the real deal. It's not um it's not something he took on in a superficial way. He's very committed to sustainable architecture. And of course what it does do is provide you with the perfect place to write. Yes, and, and the, the other thing that this house does for me, I had wanted to be quite enclosed and private because that seems to help with my work. So I work at the top of the house in what's in effect a sort of an attic room, but I can look out in three directions. I can look out all the way to Ely Cathedral across the fence. And so something about those three viewpoints is a wonderful feeling for a novelist. So I feel both private and enclosed, but able to look out at the world. And that feels a very good place to be. Mm. Well, of course, The Bewitching is set in the Fens. So, I mean, there's no secret as to where that inspiration came from. But you also found the first kind of source material about the War Boys witch trial. Tell us about the material that you found. Well, I knew the case because of a friend of mine, Kate Pullinger, another wonderful novelist, who'd written a novel called Weird Sister about this case. But hers is a contemporary-ish novel, I mean, written in the 1990s, a ghost story. So she doesn't go back into the 16th century. And I must admit, I didn't really know the real story. So when I began researching it, there's a little pamphlet, 111 pages, that tells the story in great detail, um, published in 1593, so shortly after 
particular events took place. But it's a very biased account because it's told by the main players in the story, if you like. And the story is very much about these young girls, five sisters, who accuse their neighbour of being a witch, the Throckmorton daughters. And one of the authors of the pamphlet is probably their father. And another possible author is their uncle, the vicar next door. And the third author is their other uncle, a sort of notorious witch finder, not at the time, but he became so later. So as you can see, this is a document that's not going to tell the whole story, and that's the one the novelist always wants. So I began by going to Warboys and looking at the house, the church, the village, the pond, all the places where these events took place, to try to see what, I suppose, what my imagination started to throw up for me. And that's where I always begin, and I encourage my writing students to begin. You know, go to a place that resonates with the story you want to tell and follow the logic of your imagination when you begin sort of picturing the people, the events. I mean, really, literally, I, do, I went to the pond where Alice is accused by one of these uncles of being a witch and just thought about how small it was, how close to the house, the church, what a, what a sort of tight community this would have been. And that kind of thing does give you a fabulous inspiration for the narrative, I suppose. Mm. It must be absolutely fascinating to, to go back and actually see, I mean, is the house that you describe in such wonderful detail still standing as, as it had been? It is standing. It's had some adaptations. It's had these Dutch gables added. The thing is, I didn't feel able to go in the house because, of course, it's lived in. <laughs> and it felt to me that that would both be rude to those living in it, who might not want that intrusion of a novelist, but secondly, might interfere with my ability to imagine it back then. So the thing I kind of do is look from the outside and look at things like how close it was to the church next door. So that's where I get the idea that the girl would have heard the bells ringing all the time and had this constant feeling that they should be at church and that they should be studying their Bible instead of these much more exciting and salacious and naughty witch pamphlets that they love to read. So those kinds of ideas come from looking from the outside. I mean, there's a little gate um, between the churchyard and the garden of the house. Um, the house is not a very you know, long distance from the pond. It's a short walk, 15 minutes. The house where the witch, uh, the accused witch, Alice Samuel, and her daughter and husband live no longer exists, but it's it's obvious where it was, if you see what I mean. It would mm. have been a little thatched cottage next door. And you can kind of see how these houses would have sat alongside one another. Now, you talk about the church, and of course, this was an intense time for religion in this country because Catholicism had, in effect, been completely banned. It had, and it is an intense time, and also a very, very uncertain and rather treacherous time, because I feel as if not only had Catholicism been banned, but, you know, there's a sort of period of such uncertainty that people couldn't trust their own neighbour. If you had been a Catholic, you needed to hide that. If you had once had the habit 
of, so for example, one of my characters is raised by a nun. And of course, the nuns had all been cast out. I found that there was a nunnery not very far from Warboys at Chatteris. And it's really hard to find out what happened to the nuns. The monks were taken care of and offered money when um, the dissolution of the monasteries happened in Ramsey. But the nuns were really left to be homeless. And um, many of them tried to marry late in life. That seems <laughs> a rather disastrous route for a nun. And it is strange thinking of those, those aspects of history which are hard to find out about. Nuns' lives were not considered important enough. They were women, they were poor women. So when I start looking into those things, you know, it's interesting what you can find and what you can't. And I could find a great deal about the very wealthy Cromwell family, Sir Henry Cromwell and his wife, who's a character in the novel. But I found it hard to uncover much about the lives of servants, for example. And one of my characters, the main narrator, Martha, is a servant. And Martha is deaf in one ear, and you describe her wonderful way of, of being able to sort of practically disappear by being very, very quiet and not engaging with people. Of course, you're also deaf in one ear. I, I wonder how that, that informed the development of Martha's character. It's funny, a lot of people don't realise about my deafness. I wear a hearing aid in one ear. And the trick is that, in fact, I can hear very well with the other ear. So if people are on the left-hand side of me, all is fine. And I started to understand when writing Martha how this sense of missing something, some information, a certain sense that, oh, did I miss something there, would mean that you're, as I am, very alert to all the nuances. You try to read faces, you try to understand what people might be saying by perhaps, I don't lip read and neither does she, but you do become clever at noticing what is going on and what might not be being said, but might be being conveyed. So that's the perfect device for slightly unreliable narrator. You know, how much does Martha know? How much does she have to figure out? She's also perfectly placed between the two families. That is, She's from the same class, really, as the accused woman, Alice Samuel. She's Martha's a servant. Alice is a poor neighbour who brews and bakes, and that's her source of income. But Martha is looking after the Throckmorton girls and has been in the family since she was 14. So she is very, very loyal to them. And that sort of betwixt and between position, I love exploring. Also, I suppose the ways in which being partially deaf might make me sometimes disadvantaged, but just occasionally that feeling of being invisible, like a servant, like someone that people don't notice, makes you the perfect observer and narrator. Mm, exactly, a great device for, for the narrator of the story. Let's turn now and look at Alice Samuels and women like her, because now we would call them healers. What she knew was how the natural world worked, how herbs and plants could be used to cure people of ills. And that now, of course, is very desirable. It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, the thing about women like Alice would be that their knowledge would be passed down and based on learning, observation and learning, what works, what doesn't work, and so was intensely valuable. But in this phase I'm writing about male doctors, I mean, the girls are immediately, they start having this sickness, sneezing and fits. They are sent to a quite famous male doctor, Dr. Butler, who <laughs> invented this potion that was really a kind of 
senna and it's just like a laxative <laughs> a purgative but it was offered for everything so people like dr butler was coming to prominence there was the sort of new science that very much men owned and this idea that old wives tales that the clue is really in that expression that these were just things old women knew and there's a sort of pejorative attitude whereas as you say today we're re-examining many of those beliefs, understandings, knowledge of plants, the natural world, re-evaluating it and understanding how much of it was based on science and does make a great deal of sense. So again, it's a transitional moment where Alice's beliefs and knowledge and understanding were not really trusted in quite the way they had been. I think the analogy here for me was I was writing this during the pandemic and we were all obsessed with health and with vaccines and science and perhaps misinformation, perhaps mistrust, definitely mistrust, I think, of our governments and the information we were given about mask wearing or whatever it might be. So I was looking at this idea of people suddenly not knowing who to trust. Should it be Alice and her skills? Or was that now dangerous? Was she going to be as the novel progresses, we see very much she is going to be someone accused of being in league with the devil. And, you know, therefore, we don't want to be associated with her. That would be the whole vibe in this community at that time. Mm. The sleeping sickness, which is, is or the falling sickness, which is the, the reason, in fact, that Alice is eventually accused, although, as we find out, there are many other reasons behind it. But if we look at that medically now, what might have been wrong with these girls? Oh, yes, it's fascinating. So their symptoms, sneezing, fits, and sometimes seeming to have um, hallucinations or see you know, figures moving in front of them, or all these little imps and familiars, animals, which seem to me like very strong hallucinations. They're very, very similar to the same ones expressed during the Salem witch trials a hundred years later, and in America, obviously. And one theory there was that there was a poisoning in the rye, a kind of fungus that caused this epilepsy or, or epileptic-like fits, and that the girls may indeed have been suffering from hallucinations brought on by this ergo poisoning. That's one theory. But in the book I was reading, and that wasn't known really until the 1970s, so they couldn't possibly have known that. In the book I was reading, um, Susanna Sullivan, that I mentioned earlier, The Sleeping Beauties, she looks at the ways in which emotional um, psychosomatic, I suppose, is what we'd say. Emotional reasons, psychological reasons, trauma, bringing on very genuine symptoms. So the idea that the girls are faking it is not true. It almost feels as if in, in the novel, and, and at the time, I think, there was this idea, it must be the devil, or they must be faking it. And since you can't accuse the squire's daughters of faking it, it has to be witchcraft. Mm -hmm. The third possibility is they weren't faking it at all, but they weren't suffering from a physiological illness, but more of a psychological, emotional illness, a kind of trauma. And I think that's a very interesting, less judgmental route to pursue. Mm. I, I suppose I don't feel as if these girls were, you know, just spiteful, horrible little girls trying to get their neighbour into trouble. That isn't 
the way I've approached this, I have also wondered what might be going on for these five daughters aged from eight to 16 that would make them persist in this real persecution of their neighbour. And you mentioned trauma and, and it becomes apparent in the book that not only these girls, but Alice herself, may have been subject to some kind of sexual abuse. It seems to me that so little has changed since then. Yes, I guess that my thinking there was about the ways in which many of the accused witches in the end colluded with their accusers by confessing. And it's on record that Alice did confess, that she said, yes, yes, you know, I've danced with the devil or these are the marks of the devil. Yes, she started to say rather strange things at her trial. Now, any I suppose novelist or anyone with curiosity and imagination would wonder why on earth someone would start to feel that way. So the idea of sexual trauma, sexual abuse seems to me to make sense there in why do women feel guilty? Why do we feel blamed? Why do, for example, I've written, as we mentioned earlier in the language of birds about domestic violence, why are women blamed for their own abuse? And sometimes for their own death, you know, as if as if women were too sexy or too foolish not to leave an abuser, those ideas. So I suppose in this 16th century novel, I was going right back to a very terrifying phase in women's history of violence and persecution, specifically towards women, because witches were 85% women, men were accused, but they were more often women and also older women, postmenopausal women, poor women. So I was looking at that and wondering what part violence, misogyny and sexual abuse would play. And very sadly, it doesn't feel to me as if it's much of a leap, though it's of course very hard to find out about, to imagine that this was very much part of women's lives back then as it is now. Mm. And menopause, of course, is something that looms large. It seems that Alice gets more kind of bolshy as she gets older and it's clear to, to women of a certain age what's happened here. And there's a lot about cycles, about menstruation and about, about women really just giving up, particularly the mother of the girls, uh, once she hits that period of her life. I think that the options for women then, probably as now, were, you know, in the direction of Alice was she just doesn't sort of take any prisoners. She can't be bothered to be emollient, be polite, be nice. And that goes very badly for her. So that is one possibility and it doesn't end well. Um, I would say the passivity of the squire's wife I mean, I don't want to give too many spoilers for readers, but as she starts to embrace, in a way, what's really been going on in her family and her life, she is absolutely powerless. And this is a novel about power and who has power. And unlike, I suppose, some modern writers, I don't have a desire to re-envisage history and give power to those who didn't have it. You know what I mean? Mm. Poor women, women, I don't feel were fairly treated. And that's a rage that I continue to feel. And, and I have no desire to tone that down. So I did, I suppose it's quite a chilling novel in the sense of looking very squarely at that. Who has the power in these communities? What can women do? How much can they say and speak out? 
But I did also like one of my reviewers, it happened to be a male reviewer, Ian Duhigg, who mentioned that the women have nobility, although they are poor. And I rather loved that phrase and was grateful to him for noticing that. I do try to give them dignity, mm. but I'm not persuaded to not tell the truth about this issue of power. Also, the postmenopausal aspect, when we think how often in witchcraft contemporaneous witchcraft accounts are descriptions of older women's bodies and their ugliness. You know, there's a great emphasis on how haggard with their terrible, you know, bent over bodies. And, and often these women weren't very old at all, we discover. I think that Alice was possibly around 50, as I have her in the novel. But to read the pamphlet, you'd think she was 90. Mm. So this sense in which women's bodies are despised and really, really found repugnant, I was quite shocked by that and wanted to represent it. And at one extreme, we have the idea that the girls are just coming into puberty and womanhood and would be having some hormonal you know, upset and trauma, as we know. And then the other women at the other end of the scale are sort of going into a new phase I wanted to reflect women's lives in those ways because I think it did play a part in how they were treated mm. and I mean what comes across of course is the the terrible misogyny too but it also seems to me to draw such huge parallels with today in that that basically one person is set upon and then trolled by an entire community yes yeah, scapegoating I think is an ugly part of human nature that very much we can see in evidence and lots of examples and the feeling that if one person becomes the repository for all of this fear or dislike then it keeps us safe so there's a feeling for poor Alice when she does a confession scene in the church which is the church in Warboys and I describe it exactly as I found it in the historical document that the whole community was there and she had to repent and that she thinks great that'll be an end of it all right I'll do that hideous though it is and then they'll leave me alone and in fact that doesn't happen at all and I think that where bullies are concerned you know Bullying a victim often does escalate. The victim thinks, you know, I'll just try and ignore this or, or keep my head down. And that tends very sadly not to work. So I think there are lots of modern parallels. I mean, I was thinking, as I said, during the writing of it, not so much about, I mean, I was thinking about social media as, as a sort of instrument of public shaming, which it definitely is, which the stocks used to be. But I was also thinking of mistrust as a feeling and where people start to not know whether to trust, let's say, the science or the rumours or what their neighbours do or say. And that feeling of slight, not slight, in fact, very great anxiety about where control lies and what they can do to control what's happening to them in their own lives. Mm. Well, I think it's a magnificent book. I really do. I think it just speaks to so much of who we are today, but also it's just a fascinating, thrilling story. I mean, I'm quite sure listeners will have figured out it doesn't end happily, but getting there is, is an absolute joy in, in terms of the writing. Jill, you're so prolific, as we said at the beginning. So what's next? Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying all of that. That's lovely to hear. Well, I hope that despite what we said, readers do enjoy it and do find it a sort of story. Um, what's next? I've had a nice year of 
thinking and, and pausing and I have got something starting to form very very different but set in the early 1900s I like to change switch it up change era change place um, so really it's just to watch this space it's it's such early days I'm very superstitious about mm. saying anything too soon but I can feel the shape of it and the sense in which it's just taking me in a different direction. Well, if it's anything like your previous books, it will be magnificent. Jill Dawson, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. The Bewitching by Jill Dawson is published by Scepter. And you've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Tamsin Howard. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. And don't forget, you can also listen to another interview with Jill where she talks about her inspiration, her early life and why she started writing. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.